Father, we come before you, grateful hearts. Father, overwhelmed with the love that you have given to us and you have poured through us. Father, may we, who are called by your name, drink deep from the well of living and eternal life and freedom and hope in Christ Jesus alone. Father, as I think of this text, I am overwhelmed. I pray, Lord, that these dear, precious souls will be overwhelmed also. Father, they will sit back, think deeply, and as David in the book of Psalms would give a hearty amen to you and solely to you. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. May your spirit fill our hearts with these words, their meanings, their applications, their power. And may we, as we have just sung, bow before you with an amen and the joy of our salvation engulf us. To your praise. Amen. 6 through 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face was fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You just take one reading through that, and all I get is confusion. And I believe that that is the bane that is on the church today. I believe... That this is a very, very, very important study. I have watched people in the evangelical church study 
the Calvin side, the Arminius side, ecclesiology, what is the church, eschatology, the end of the church, Christology, who is Christ, theology, who is God, who is pneumatology, the air compressor guy. No, it's the Holy Spirit. I have watched us discuss the beginning and the end. Was it a literal six days? Was it a young earth? Is the Antichrist coming out of the United Nations? I have watched us debate it. I have watched us tear apart each other. I have seen people fight over baptism. Is it a sprinkling? Is it an immersion? And they go on and they go on and they go on and they go on. And you know what I have learned? I have never heard anyone discuss the new covenant. And yet every one of you in this room has dealt with it. Every single one of you. If you have partaken of the Lord's table, you take the cup of what? The new covenant, which was in his blood. And you know what I heard out of that years ago? Well, that's just his promises. Really? That's it? In his blood is a bunch of promises. I believe, both through my own personal experience and what I know of Scripture, that it is extraordinarily and maybe the single greatest issue that you need to have a complete grasp on is this covenant. Because he says right here, we are servants of what? That's amazing to me. That's what we're here for. We are servants of the new covenant. And you know what? I believe that the bulk of Christianity is clueless of what that means. And I believe there are even some in this room who are clueless to what that means. I believe that once you grasp this as a child of the living God, it will change your life. Most people, when they look at the new covenant and or the old covenant, they look at it through the vision of it's just theology. I also believe that this may be the most difficult section of Second Corinthians. It's difficult to interpret. I do know that. And I do know that it's taken me years to grasp the new covenant. And unless you give yourself unto the text, unless you are devoted to this text, I believe that you will struggle with it and you will act just the way that Paul is against in this text. At the same time, um, being that it is difficult, when the difficulty is removed, do you know that you will have the greatest grasp of the New Testament that exists? I was reading some other authors and they used words of this text, six. Actually, they usually go, our adequacy is from God, the end of verse five, through. 
But I, I read some amazing men of God, and they used terms like brilliant, profound, sweeping, far-reaching. I will tell you this from my feebleness. This text still has an amazing impact on me today and is unrelenting in its impact on me. It does not stand alone. This section is literally laced throughout all of Scripture. I think it was Dr. Olford said, this is a watershed text. You can say that when you're uh, Welsh. Uh, watershed was a thing that was out back of the house uh, before indoor plumbing showed up when I was growing up. I do know this, that in my life, on a personal note, this text influences me in every direction. You guys have seen me at times a little uh, cranky over some of the things that the church attempts. It will all be based on this text. When you hear me dig my heels into something that I refuse to be a part of, its foundation is this text. To understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here is to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament. To understand the law of Moses and the gospel. Lenski said, it is profound and a strategic section of scripture, unquote. But when we first look at it, you say it's 2010, late October, here in Castle Rock. How in the world does this apply to the evangelical church here or in America? And I'll be honest with you, your first reading of the text, I just read it, seems a little confusing, doesn't it? And it's almost like it's confusing in every verse. It's like, well, what was that? Well, what was that? And what the heck is Moses in a veil got to do with the price of rice in China or in Corinth? But I will tell you that it will take some looking and discerning to study this. And even then, I believe that you will scratch your head. A number of you in this uh, fellowship, remember, uh, we taught a precept class on covenant. And some of you took it, some of you didn't. And <clears throat> when I took that class, I really felt like I was opening something. By the time I got done with that class, I thought, well, that was a waste of time. Okay. But for whatever reason, I ended up in this text. And what I learned in that class, and that's been probably 10, 12 years ago. Um, I don't believe that that study is comprehensive enough. What does it have to do with where I am today? 
I mean, I read it, you know, okay, the Jews' minds are hardened to this day, and the reading of the Old Covenant, same veil remains, okay, it can't be lifted unless, Moses, unless it's in Christ, all right, if the ministry of condemnation was glory, much more ministry of righteousness, abounding glory, what in the world has that got to do with the price of rice in China? I will tell you emphatically, and it may take me nine to ten weeks to get through it, but emphatically, this relates in a very, very specific way to every single one of you. Every single one of you. Um, In case you are wondering, I think I'm going to take some time to go through this. I've been known to do that sometimes. But I want you, when I'm done, to understand. There is not an aspect of your life that that text right there does not affect directly. I'm not going to hurry. And everybody goes, oh man, (laughs) he'll have to finish this up in glory. I believe that this is foundational, and I believe that each message, if I am at all aware of this, each message will build on the next. If you really are going to understand this text, if you're really going to understand what the Apostle Paul, if you're really going to understand what God's trying to get through to you, and its tremendous implications with every aspect of your life, The first thing that each one of you needs to do, first thing, is to be here. (laughs) I know, you're expecting something great, weren't you? I will not have time to review this week after week after week. It will keep building. If for some reason you can't make it, it will be online. And I would really suggest, because I'm telling you, you will never have a stretch that will affect your life more than that text right there. I don't know. It sounds like a bunch of theology. Well, just a bunch of stuff. That's the Old Testament, New Testament, veils, Moses, you know. So one's on stone, one's on my heart. I know. Amen. It will be very hard if you're not here for you to to pick it up back up because it does build on itself. If you look at your outlines, you can see that it builds on yourself because we are looking at the glory of the new covenant. You will have to be faithfully and thoughtfully and you will need to follow carefully these truths. It's not just for the it's not just for the sake of understanding but it's for that understanding, what does it mean to you? Okay? What does it mean to this church? What does it mean for the cause of Christ? There's a philosopher, Voltaire. What's his name? Voltaire, Sorry. And he had a statement, and he made it years ago. It was like the early 1800s. He says, I would be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. Would you show me a redeemed life?
You guys know Gandhi? Do you know why he took the path he did? He lived with a group of Christians in Africa, a family of Christians. And after, I think it was about 18 or 19 months, he realized that they really didn't have anything that other people didn't have. And he said he believed that the philosophy of Christianity was truly right. But men can't do it. This is a passage, and I shared with the Sunday school class, this, this passage will bloom like a flower. You ever seen those things where they do the time-lapse thing and the flower's all sealed up and all of a sudden it goes, whoop. Oh, so that was fascinating. That's what this text does. And you know what I like about this text? It will bloom like a flower. It will unfold itself and I like it because it will do it in spite of me. This is a passage. We'll we'll put all truths out here. This is a passage that I have wanted to preach for about 12 to 14 years. This is the passage That I wanted to teach you when I started 1 Corinthians. It took me nine years to do 1 Corinthians. And now I'm moving into this. So you know I'm in no hurry. My passion is preaching and teaching. My passion is educate and motivate. There are times in this text and these messages that are coming in the next weeks that you may feel that it is more theological than practical. I will tell you now, be patient. This is a very, very, very important part of Scripture. Okay, now, that was my intro into the introduction. Because I want to lay this thing out that you understand what you're preparing to walk into. The proper understanding of the Christian church and the minister... has been severely clouded, cluttered, confused, muddied. And it comes on a line that we are all guilty of. They call it sacramentalism, ceremonialism. It comes out of the Orthodox line and the Roman Catholic line. And we have married them back. You see it in the Protestants today in our quote-unquote 
rituals. Please do not think that you haven't walked in it. The pure, true, clear, new covenant gospel, the authentic Christian faith has been severely threatened by ritualism. I just did a survey. I don't know if it was this last week or or a week before. Um, Because I am one of the oldest senior pastors in our denomination here in Colorado, not age, I have been in this pulpit longer than most Southern Baptist pastors. Actually, if you go across the nation, I've been in this. Never mind. Um, They send me surveys every once in a while wanting to know, you know, what am I doing now and all the rest of it. And they were wanting to know the spiritual condition of the church. And they got all these really silly questions. And you click one here, click one here. They won't let me click more than once. That kind of annoying to me. But anyway, they started asking me questions on when was the last time you commanded a fast in your church? They had a question on when did I have my last foot washing service? Okay. What is that? Can you tell me what that is? Ceremony and rituals from the largest evangelical denomination in the United States. Okay. You want another one? I'll give you some more. Where in the Bible does it say that the pastor does weddings? Where in the Bible does it tell me that the pastor or the minister is supposed to go to the hospital when I break my knee or whatever? Where does it say that? I'm just giving you some questions. I want you to think about some some of this stuff. I've got books that they send me that tell me how to do the funeral of an infant, how to do the funeral of an unbeliever, how to do the funeral of a believer, how to do the funeral of an old believer, how to do the funeral of a young believer. Really? How to do marriage. You know, I've got a manual that the Southern Baptist put out on how to marry, perform the wedding of unbelievers. Everybody says, I ain't asking him to come visit me if I'm sick. <laughs> it's obvious he'd just be there cranky. <laughs> Fact of the matter is, Ritualism was the battle that led to what you and I know as the Reformation. Martin Luther had was in the priesthood and had gone to Rome and had watched this line of people pay money. So they had what they claimed was was the steps that had gone up to Pontius Pilate's chair where he sentenced Christ to the cross. And the people would line up four and five across and they would crawl on their hands and knees up these steps so that they could reach the top level 
to where Christ was condemned for their sins. And they would hope that their knees would bleed on the wood and therefore they would know the agony of Christ. And what happened was this became so profound that they literally built another set of steps on the backside of it so they could get more people up. And Luther went and did that and then he realized how stupid that was. That this ritual, this ceremony had nothing to it. True evangelicalism separated itself from ceremonialism and sacramentalism. Okay, they've got all these really cool names, sacramentalism and ritualism. You know what I call it? Mechanical Christianity. Mechanical Christianity. I remember one time young in my face, I thought, why can't we get the evangelicals to have the energy of the charismatics and the theology of the conservatives? The guys with the true theology should have way more energy than the people who are running around on emotion. And I couldn't understand that. It just... Well, if you really do know the things of God, why you act like you're mad? What I found is, is that the church becomes mechanical. And when the church becomes mechanical, the church takes the place of Christ. We become attached by means of external ceremony. We become attached by a ritual. We become attached by a sacrament. We become attached uh, to priestly function. You know, I'll give you another one. Why would you call me and tell me to pray for something? I don't have the red phone. Your relationship with God is the same as mine. He doesn't hear my prayers before yours. Now, there's nothing wrong with a bunch of us praying in the spirit for the same thing. I think that's a good thing. But there are times that we think, well, I need to call Terry and have him to pray for. I don't even know that person. But see, we have it in our mind. What is my responsibility? Are you not sure you don't want me to be doing some ceremonies and rituals? Because if you are, then you have just made the church take the place of Christ. The church has displaced the true Christ and the people have a connection to the church and it's external. It's mechanical means rather than a connection to the living God through Christ. You know what? There are some who understand them, understand this, and there are many who don't. Church services. I mean, I got this ongoing thing with Stephanie. She says, I'm going out in the sanctuary. You're the sanctuary. I'm going out in that room with all the chairs. 
I don't yell at her like that, though. Very often. <laughs> Church services are ritualistic. I've been threatening to put all the music after the message. And everybody goes, what? You can't do that. Watch me. <laughs> everybody, I'm coming next week. Just see if he'll do it. We see church services are ceremonial. They're mechanical. Ministers are seen and see themselves as functions. This is what I'm supposed to be doing now. It's time to stand up. They see themselves as clerics who are doing certain physical things, carrying out certain physical rituals. By the way, did I tell you that that is foreign to Scripture? Worship is true, is truth. Service is true spiritual worship. Oh, by the way, it's from the heart. It's passion. Ministers and pastors are not priests. I do not intercede on your behalf for your sins. There's one high priest. I ain't him. I am no different than you. My duty is different. My passion is different. You know what my main responsibility is? Is a prophet. You know what a prophet does? Makes people mad. <laughs> you read the Old Testament. Nobody liked Ezekiel. Nobody liked Jeremiah. He's telling us God's mad at us. But that's really, if you think about it, isn't that really the basis? I am a herald. I am a herald. I stand for God says. He told the woman at the well, you worship on the hillside. The Jews worship in Jerusalem. I tell you now, and the time is now, you what? You worship in spirit and truth. When? Now. I have people who call me. Uh, what style of worship do you have? Long. <laughs> Ongoing. Sacrificial. Pastors are servants. They are shepherds. They are teachers. Think about this for a second. I will be your servant. You are not my master. How many congregations do you see today where the congregation believes they are the master? Stephen Olford told me one time, he says, one of the things you've got to really guard yourself from is the tyranny of the urgent. Because you know what? Your problems are really important to you. And let me tell you something. That is the difference between 
the difference between the, the pastor servant and the truth of the congregation is what? You're all servants. Did you know that makes you not the master? Just an idea. If you're the same slave I am, that's the difference. That difference is as great as the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant in holy writ. Sacramental religion has always been viewed in the history of the church of orthodox creation. Christianity, it has always, always, always been viewed as a heresy. And yet you and I have embraced it. And it's heretical. You don't believe me? Give me the biblical precedence for an altar call. Give me the biblical precedence that says you are to accept Christ. Give me the biblical precedence on man's free will. Do you see what we've done? We, the things that Luther fought for, that every man should have scripture and read it himself, we've done what? We went back. Well, I don't like Catholics, but I'll do it this way. And you know what? That heresy that started with Catholicism has not gone away. Listen, read the the first letter to the first church in Revelations. Who's it to? Ephesus. And he says, your deeds now are greater than they were in the beginning. That's pretty good, huh? You put to test those who claim to be teachers. So you've got your doctrine down. You've got her working. You are protecting. That is really, really good. But you do have a problem. What was the problem? Lost their first love. So please understand, I'm not picking on you. This has been going on for a thousand years. This isn't a new phenomenon. It becomes an external ceremony in the place of internal worship. It is something else in the place of Christ. That's exactly what it is. M in personal ritual in place of personal salvation. Ceremonies, sacraments as means of grace. Well, if I get baptized, maybe I'll get this job. Ceremonies and sacraments as a means of grace rather than symbols of grace. And if you think about it, go back through history, you'll see that was the basis for what we call the Protestant Reformation. We don't need symbols. Why? Christ fulfilled it. Christ fulfilled it. 
you know what? I, I watch the church, and, I, and I've been, you know, I, I have truly been blessed to be in this one church my entire Christian life. That, that is very difficult for people to say. Okay, I, that, w- that would make me sort of like an, an oddity. And everybody says, you don't have to say that. We know that. But one of the things that I've always done, even before taking the pulpit, is I, I always viewed the pastor as lifted up. Do you see that in churches today? Ministers today are those who minister in the ceremonies. I mean, I heard a guy tell me, he said, well, you need to like wear a robe. <laughs> okay. Can I just wear a towel? You know, I have to be different. True ministers. I want you to understand this. True ministers are those who see the face of God. They hear his voice and they come out of his presence and speak to God's people. That's a true minister. That's what Paul said. Who is adequate? Who is adequate to go see the face of God? Who is adequate to go hear the voice of God? And then come out. You know, there were some had gone in and they were gone. But the contrast is there of who? Of the old covenant. It was Moses. What did he do? He went into the holy place of the tabernacle and he was in the presence of who? God. And he heard God's voice and he came out. And the people went, "Uh uh-oh. And yet he contrasts that as nothing compared to what we are now. Let me ask you a question. Why don't you act like it? Go see the face of God. Go hear the voice of God and come out and shout it from the mountaintops. Do you see why this text impacted me? And is still impacting me. Now you know why I wanted to preach it. Next week I will wear my veil. (laughs) The church needs to stand against sacramentalism. It is corrupting true Christianity today. Exactly what we see Paul doing in this chapter. Now, his historically and specifically and contextually, he's going against Judaism. You and I, we have a very large Catholic population in this community. Huge. Okay. You also have the Orthodox. You also have the wonderful Episcopalians. They're all around. It's there. And they believe that their sacraments is a line on grace. If I do this, 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 and this, I will be blessed. And you know what? It's deadly. It damns men's souls. 
there are other problems. A lot of the stuff that I have seen mingled into the church, into the quite a, I call it the, the it's mechanical Christianity, but it's based on uh, on formulas for church growth. Okay, and it is all based on what ceremonies and rituals. Well, we don't sit around and light candles. Listen, there was a church in this community that did it. An evangelical church, Protestant church. I'm not talking about Catholics or any of them others. They did it. Why? What's it going to do? There are churches in this community right now who are burning incense. And that accomplishes what? Evangelical churches. And what I watch, I watch the psychology and the philosophy of the world brought into the church. And now all of you're saying is that me viewing God's face, hearing God's voice and proclaiming it is not sufficient. Why are we buying hook, line and sinker that a good worship service has audio visual stuff? You know, a big screen with, wow, man, did you see the babbling brook? Really? I do not understand why any Christian could go to church and not take a Bible. That seems really retarded to me. Completely off the wall. It doesn't make a bit of sense to me. I do not understand that at all. Well, we put ours up on the screen. Well, what do they do on Monday? This passage will help us to think clearly about separating true Christian from ceremonialism. Listen, you will never, ever, ever have a right relationship to God through an external means. It's impossible. Paul was facing this in the church. Judaizers um, were pushing the mosaic ceremonies necessary in salvation, including circumcision to the point they called themselves the party of the circumcision. Holding to ceremony. He dealt with it in Colossians and Colossae. What? Don't let people put burdens of Sabbaths and new moons and feasts and rituals. Listen, do you really believe external is a means of grace, as a means of blessing? Think about it. You know what? I've had people who showed up well, a couple of years ago. I don't remember when it was. Christmas showed up on Sunday. Okay. Uh, December 25th was a Sunday. And I had people who complained. Of course, we were crowded. Okay, the high holy day. Okay, and I had people complain. He didn't give us a Christmas message. I was still in First Corinthians and I'm still cruising through First Corinthians. You know, on Easter, he doesn't give us an Easter. Now, that's not true because a couple of years ago, I stumbled into First Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection. And it happened to be on Resurrection Sunday, but I did not plan that. <laughs> okay, it just, whoops, can you believe it? This fact of ceremonies and rituals as a means of grace and a blessing uh, is threatening the purity of the church today. A number of years ago, I can't remember how long ago, it was when we were downtown, uh, an extreme part of it was this uh, document that came out. It was called ECT, Evangelicals Catholics Together. 
And what was in that was horrific. And there was a number of Christian leaders who signed on to it. That we can be allied with Catholicism. We can be cooperative with Catholicism because our same social mindset is the same. Anti-abortion, anti-this, anti-that, and whatever. And I thought, are you out of your minds? Who thought this up? Are you telling me that the ceremonial church and the true church can be one in anything? No. Well, we know. No. Ceremony throughout the history of the evangelical church has been heretical. Guess what? Still is. Paul was against it. Luther was against it. Everybody I've ever read, everybody I ever admire says no, no, no. Why do they have mass every day? Do you know why? It's an act of blessing. Go in, tell Jesus you're sorry. Thanks. And now you'll be blessed. Really? James told me, count it all joy, brother, when you fall into various trials. That don't sound like a blessing. That's what Paul is dealing with here. Listen, Paul wants to make it emphatically clear to all of us that the old is gone. There is no place for the ceremonies. There is no place for the rituals. They were pictures. We now have reality. Paul is transparent about this. I want us to understand that in chapter 6, verse 11 of this letter. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, for our heart is opened wide. You know what that means? I'm not hiding anything. What you see is what you get. You can go all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. For here the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. See how he's treating them? He considered them his children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? See, the reason that he is hammering away at this thing is because he was overwhelmed by his love for them. That's how important this is. Chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed, perplexed and not despairing, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down and not destroyed, always carrying around on a body of dying of Christ, so that the life of Christ may be manifest in our body. We are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. This is what I'm talking about when I speak of the new covenant. Do you hear what he just said there? Chapter 6, verse 4. 
But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance and afflictions and hardship and distress and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and in genuine love. That's what Paul is articulating to you and I. Chapter 7, verse 5. For even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts and fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us at the coming of Titus. Chapter 11, verse 23. Are we servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, and far more labors, and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I have had been in frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers, and dangers from my countrymen and dangers from Gentiles, and dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, and dangers from among false brethren. I have been in labor and in hardship. Through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That is key, brothers, sisters, beloved of God. Do you see what ministry is? And we have forsaken the new covenant for comfort. I'm going to close with this. And I just want you to think about this. Because like I said, I'm setting the stage for where we're going to move into. Do you understand? What he's saying here is he's. Is holy writ describing his love for the Corinthian church. Okay, now a cursory reading of the Corinthian letters, my first response is, why in the world would you even like these people? They seem to be a bigger heartache than they are anything. But it was obvious out of all the 13 books that he wrote in the New Testament, these people had a special place in this man's heart. He wrote them more than anybody. And it is so obvious of his love for them. But I want you to think about this as you walk out of here and you've got your week in front of you. Okay. First Corinthians dealt with the sins of the people. Second Corinthians deals with doctrinal defection. Guess what? Ain't that what a minister does? I have looked at my life as, as a pastor, as a brother in Christ for all these years, and it boils down sins of the people and doctrinal defection. That's it. These two letters compose both of those. And if you think about it, Paul says, who is adequate? Well, God has made us adequate to what? To deal with the sins of the people and doctrinal defection. Brothers and sisters, 
That's the battle. Who is adequate to deal with the sins of the people and doctrinal defections? It's easy. Verse 6. We are servants of the new covenant. The new covenant and what we will look at in these next weeks will deal with the sins of the people and doctrinal defections. And it just rocks my universe. I know it doesn't sound real pastoral, does it? Well, what can I say? It makes me happy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for my brother Paul who set an amazing path before us. Father, we who are gathered today in your name are ministers. Father, please help us to be adequate for the task that is set before us. Father, may we hunger and thirst for your righteousness. May we hunger as the deer at the brook for your word that we may look upon it with a hearty amen. And thank you, Father, for the amazing things you've already done. Father, I thank you for the privilege you've given me to immerse myself in this, this ministry. And I pray that I bring you glory and I bring you honor. Help me to walk. Help my brothers and sisters to walk. May we flee sin. And Father, may we long and hold tight to doctrine that we do not defect. To your praise and glory. In Christ's name, amen.